Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Hello, and welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm Mark Rutland. I'm the executive director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership, and I'm delighted that you've joined this podcast today. I think it's going to be very important for you, especially if you're in any kind of leadership position anywhere. Well, in fact, you are. If you live in a family, if you're a father, mother, if you're at a work, you can lead from anywhere you are, and you do lead one way or another from wherever you are. Today, I want to consider uh, a very important issue, and that's something that a lot of people talk about, the the difference between or the tension between, assumed tension, between management and leadership. Management, Peter Drucker says, is doing things right. Leadership, likewise, Drucker says, is doing the right thing. Now, I humble myself. Far be it for me to ar- or to uh, argue with the great Peter Drucker, but I believe that's too fine a delineation. I think it makes it sound like they are entirely separate. What I believe is that management and leadership are more like the two faces of the same coin. Now, one may be, may be better or more gifted or more naturally inclined to the managerial side of things or more inclined toward the leadership side of things. But I think where where things go wrong most often in an organization is where the person who is managerial is dismissive of or even resistant to all those concepts which line up on the leadership side and vice versa. Now, let's just talk about what these two words mean. First of all, management, what is it about? It's about planning, budgeting. Uh, that is uh, budgeting in the sense of prioritizing and, and resource allocation, getting the right amount of money to the right thing at the right time, organizing, getting staff in the right place, alignment, um, hiring the right people, getting them to do their jobs correctly, quality control, Especially management is about problem solving, making sure that everything runs right, that it, it, that it is, it creates, management wants to create predictability. We know exactly how this is going to go. We know how many, you're, you run a hardware manufacturing company, you want to know that we can produce uh, without the machine's shutting down without problems. We can produce a predictable number of 10-penny nails every year, sell them the same to the same companies, to the same distributors, the same hardware sales. We want order, predictability. We want to know that there won't be any big, huge surprises, that the machines are going to run, the salesmen are going to sell, the orders are going to come in. We want to produce that. So it's planning, budgeting, organizing, getting everything in the right way and and then kind of hovering over it to make sure that we control the situation so there are very few problems and any problems that arise, we solve them. This creates predictability and order. What we want as a manager is consistent, short-term results. I just want to know, 
I can make the same number of nails, sell the same number of nails without any big, huge hiccup in the line anywhere. That's management. Leadership tends to be more about establishing the direction, more about uh, creating vision and motivation, inspiring, leading into new markets, going to new products, new ideas. So this, this creates change. When you, when you talk about new products, new approaches, it causes change, and change is destabilizing. So you can see the tension if management wants predictability and order and leadership creates change and destabilization, you can see that there is sort of a natural friction between those who line up on the management side and those who line up on the leadership side. Leaders want to create new products. They want to explore and experiment with new approaches, new ways of making stuff, making it better new markets and uh, new, new ways of expansion. But management can often flinch at those things and say, if we experiment with that, we're not going to do what we're supposed to do as we ought to do it. We won't produce and sell the same number of 10-penny nails. So how, how do we resolve that or how do you deal with that supposed tension? First of all, that tension can exist inside the executive himself or herself. Because you have a natural proclivity. Uh, you're just that's in you, just like the color of your eyes by DNA. You tend more toward management, more toward control, or you tend more toward leadership, more toward vision. And you may have both, you may be capable at both, but I promise you, you have an internal compass. And you shake that compass all around, then you set it down. The needle may swing for a while, but sooner or later, it will lean slightly toward the polar, the true polar north of management or toward, toward the true polar north of leadership. Now, everyone believes that we are perfectly balanced, that between the one of management and the 10 of leadership, my needle is exactly on five. I'm perfect in every way, balanced on both. The problem is it simply isn't true. There is something in you that either leans slightly or greatly toward visionary leadership or likes that organized, controlled management side of things. So here's a test. If your favorite phrase is a place for everything and everything in its place, you may be toward management. If your favorite phrase is, we'll deal with that later, everybody mount up, then probably your needle points toward leadership. Now, neither disqualifies the leader or manager's ability to capture some of the values and abilities of the other. So, for example, if, if you tend to be a leader, you, you are that visionary, hard-driving, type A, looking constantly for new directions, uh, constantly destabilizing the organization that you lead with fresh ideas and creativity— it may mean that you have to learn at least an appreciation for managerial realities, hire people around you and under you that can take care of those kinds of details, and then respect what they bring to the table. In other words, you can't be a visionary directional leader 
who hires managers to work for you and around you and then resent them. They will say to you, hey, we need to deal with this. We need to sort that out. Because leaders, the tendency of leadership, visionary leadership, is to outrun your supply lines. What you want to make sure of is that you listen to the people around you who say, not so fast, let's make sure we've dealt with the logistical issues. If they simply rub you the wrong way, you'll burn through your managerial assistance. By the same token, if your tendency is toward control and management, that's fine. But remember, an organization that's standing still, that's plateaued too long, will 100%, not may, will begin to drift backward. Complacency gradually, at some point or another, leads into downturn. So the, the natural manager is going to have to learn some visionary leadership skills. The natural leader is either going to have to is going to have to learn an appreciation for management and hire the people around you that can that can help you sort out or have people around you in leadership. So you you young pastors that are listening to this, you're a visionary leader and you're dealing with maybe the board of a church. And some of those board members are older and more, um, more experienced than you are. That, that tough board member who's asking the hard questions about money and resources and time, all of those things, he just may not be the Antichrist. He might be trying to keep you from driving the truck of leadership over the cliff. By the same token... Those managers who have moved into your more mature years and you've kind of settled in and you just want predictability, order, and consistent short-term results, you must keep in mind that unless you're pressing forward, even at a slower pace, unless you're pressing forward, eventually the BBs will all learn roll back to the wrong end of the table. Now, managers the natural managers tend to to believe that they are disqualified from leadership and nothing could be further from the truth. In World War II, the the greatest of all, the the highest ranking multi-star general of all of the armies of the entire allies was Brigadier General Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was the supreme commander of the of the allies he is he w- was a general who never in his entire career led any troops into combat he was a, a field grade officer during world war 1 but as were most of the most of the multi-star generals of world war 2 had also been field grade officers in world war 1 patton um Montgomery in the in the British Army, they they had been in World War One. So when World War II came, they were the top generals. They were the 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 big leaders. Eisenhower had missed combat in World War One because he was such an effective manager that he just kept being moved around from one dysfunctional fort and one dysfunctional unit after another throughout World War I. They would just send him to Bliss, Fort Bliss, and then to Fort Sale, and then to Fort Leavenworth, and to one place after another where 
It was not working well, not running well, and the training wasn't happening to get the troops into combat. He was so effective, so good at it, that they just kept moving him around, and he never got to Europe. So between the wars, between World War I and World War II, Eisenhower stayed in. He was career army. When World War II came, then he assumed this will be my war. This will be my chance to enter into into combat and and lead troops. You train for combat. You train for war. You're a war fighter. And so he, he assumed this will be my chance to lead troops into battle. But what happened was President Roosevelt and, and George C. Marshall needed someone who could who could manage the war. Think of the complexity of this. You have a, a global conflict, a world war being fought, not only on every continent of the globe, except Antarctica, I suppose, but it's being fought uh, uh, on all of these fronts. It's being fought in all of these different ways. You have, you have in the air, you have on the sea, you have under the sea, you have on the ground, you have artillery, you have, you have every kind of tactical approach and the comprehensive strategy of trying of having one set of allies try to defeat another set of allies. It's it's truly a a management nightmare. Who can handle that? Who can deal with all of the of the egos of the generals involved? You've got George C. Patton on one side, who was a great uh, combat general, but he was he was a uh, to be frank, he was kind of a narcissistic nutcase. And on the other side, you've got Field Marshal Montgomery with the British, and he was a prima donna, to say the least. So you have to have somebody that can manage those egos and and keep uh, Montgomery and Patton uh, fighting the Nazis and not fighting each other. So who can handle that? Who can... Who can deal with the unbelievable conflict worldwide and the, the challenge of just getting the resources where they have to be? Because the, you've got MacArthur in the Pacific that's demanding to go back and invade the Philippines. You've got Patton who's wanting to get into Europe, who's fighting in North Africa. You have tanks. You have submarines. You have the Navy. You have all of these issues and someone who has to be able to deal with the United States Congress and the British Parliament who can deal with Roosevelt on one side of the Atlantic and Churchill on the other side of the Atlantic who could possibly do that managerially and keep some kind of visionary leadership moving forward because the point is not simply to manage the conflict it is the vision is to defeat Germany who could do that they settled on Dwight D. Eisenhower. So for the second time in his life, Eisenhower missed combat war. He never led troops into battle. But he was the supreme commander of all the allies in World War II. Furthermore, he later was elected president of the United States, two-term Republican president. And he is often dismissed, particularly by his critics, as being a sort of a boring managerial president who just kind of lived through two terms. That's not true. If you like the highways, the federal highways that you drive on, if you like the, the interstate system, 
you need to get down on your knees and thank God for General President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower was not a particularly charismatic person. He was not physically real attractive. He was a manager more than a leader. But he rose to be used uh, by his nation and by the world in one of the greatest global conflicts ever. So if you're a person who, a leader who tends more toward the managerial side of things, don't for one moment feel that that eliminates you from great leadership accomplishments. If you are a person who tends toward the leadership side of things, then remember that you must understand that the management of these things keeps you from outrunning your supply lines. Patton was a great combat general, but the problem was he attacked so fast, so hard, so often that sometimes the rest of the army couldn't keep up with him and he tended to outrun his supply lines. Often he had to be his own uh, personality had to be dealt with. He caused as many train wrecks as he cured. So on the leadership side of things, surround yourself with good managers and, and listen to them and, and pay attention to the questions, the logistical and managerial questions that they ask. If you're a natural manager, then you can believe God for visionary leadership. You can say to God, all right, I, in myself, I probably am more like Dwight Eisenhower than I am like George Patton. But I pray that you'll give me, O oh God, a long-term vision of victory and expansion, and then undergird that with my natural gifts in management. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Leader's Notebook. I'm Mark Rutland. I'm the Executive Director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership, and I would love for you to join me in the NICL. We deal with things like this and the very eminently practical issues of management and leadership, how to turn around an organization, how to hire, how to fire, unfortunately, how to structure staff, debt acquisition, debt resolution, every kind of um, managerial and leadership issue you can imagine. And I'd love to have you in the program with me. I have hundreds and hundreds of graduates from all over the world, and I would love to have you in that number as well. Go to thenicl.com, and I'd love to have you in the class. Again, this is Mark Rutland for The Leader's Notebook. God bless you. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.